Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm the great old one Cthulhu. You called? Ah, no, that's a joke. Um, I think, seriously though, that the UK should vote Remain. Because let me tell you, those EU fishing laws technical measures mean that I'm not constantly getting stuck in all those mesh nets anymore. I mean, seriously, it's pretty hard being an ancient cosmic entity when one of those is tugging at you right in the tentacles. Ah! Hi, I'm Mary, or Bloody Mary as apparently I'm pretty spicy in the morning. I don't know what that means. We need to leave secular Europe and Brexit. Can't have all those proddies running around free movement everywhere. Let's get back to a sovereign Catholic Britain, and I'll burn anyone who says otherwise. Oh. Oh, is that what they mean by spicy? Hi, we're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Three horsemen today. I'm war, and I'd love a Brexit, as I'm tired of this peace between member states nonsense. I'm Pestilence, and um, yeah, we should toast remain, as free movement is great for spreading lovely, lovely diseases. I'm deaf, and um, I really couldn't care less. I mean, you're all gonna die, single market or not. I wish some of you would die sooner, to be honest. And yeah, famine can't be here, as he's on the 5 2 diet and today's a fasting day or something, so he hasn't got the energy or brain power to think about it. and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian Nduyeb, and while Nicola Sturgeon warns against using fear tactics, I'd like to warn against you all using fear Tic Tacs. Mint is a much better option for fresh breath than chewing on the possibility of impending horror. Plus, they come in packs with huge bright aggressive lettering, but not much actual content inside. On this week's show, I'm going to be looking at my least favourite of the fruits, the Queen's Peach. Uh, I'm really sorry. No, I'm not. Uh, Of course, there's more EU nonsense. Uh, My guest from episode one, do you remember way back then, uh, Kia Shields, the junior doctor? Um, He's got a little update for us on the junior doctor's contract amendments. And also, I'm going to be speaking to Susan Jex from Care for Calais about the uh, constant refugee crisis. Um... 
Not much to say up front this week on the podcast, other than the usual sort of, you know, please review us, please subscribe, why don't you send me cakes and money in the post? Um, but apart from those things, uh, here are a few of the not many things that I have to say. Um, firstly, uh, I've been asked to be part of a politician-free panel on the EU. Um, that's not one where there's just a bin full of free MPs and you get one in a goodie bag on your way out. Uh, no, a politician-free panel is much better than that. It is a panel with no MPs anywhere near it. You know, like, imagine a question time, except that you might actually enjoy it. Exactly. Uh, It's going to be organised, or it is being organised, by the very lovely people at Simple Politics, and it's taking place at the Whitstable Umbrella Community Centre on the 16th of June in Whitstable. I mean, that's... It would be weird if it was somewhere else. Um, I believe it is free to come uh, along if you live around there, um, and there's going to be a bar, and it should be quite fun. Um, And if not, it's going to be streamed live online via the Simple Politics website, which I will plug uh, a bit nearer the time and give more details for. Um, And as well as me... uh, there are some people on the panel who are actually able to probably have a reasonable debate and know actual things, um, including Sophia Cannon, who does lots of uh, um, appearances on, on BBC News, Sky News, and she's a barrister and a campaigner. Uh, there's Dominic Frisby, um, who's who's a comedian, and I believe he does e- economic stuff. Um, and then there's Emma Pullen, who is a... I don't know. And then there's the HuffPost's Owen Bennett, who's going to be on a fact-checking desk, making sure that we all make absolute sense. Um... And then also, um, as well as that, further adding to this this bizarre conspiracy theory that I actually know anything about anything. I don't. It's all a lie. Um, I'm on the uh, Challenging Opinions podcast this week, uh, where the guy, William, that does that, um, he asked me to try and explain the EU referendum to his audience who are mostly US listeners. Um, I'm not sure I manage it at all, but if you fancy hearing you know, things that I say that could be wrong and you could possibly use against me uh, then do have a listen um I mean, I have really discovered that without Google, I really don't know very much uh, at all. Um, in fact, I do this show to try and learn things. If I didn't research this show every week before writing it, it would really just be me blowing raspberries constantly for about 50 minutes. Which, I mean, let's face it, would still be more bearable than either of the EU campaigns or, you know, another article by Tristram Hunt. I did actually see Tristram Hunt on a bus a few weeks ago, and yet he does look like a CGI dog that's been turned into a human by a curse in real life as well. Oh, and feedback from last week's show is that generally it is a lot nicer for your ears now. Um, So that is good. If you still think it's too loud, I'll just keep lowering the levels uh, until it's a very low hum, which I guess you may like to use for meditation purposes. Anyway, hums and raspberries aside. Headlines. Austria have voted in a new president, an independent candidate backed by the Green Party called Alexander de Bellen. Which, yeah, sounds a little bit like Alex the Bellend, and yes, that is funny. But no, that's not why this is a bit of news. Nor is it that Der Bellen, <laughs> Der Bellen is the first environmental activist to become president, which is a positive result in itself. Um, no, sadly, the reason this is news is because Der Bellen only very, very narrowly beat the very far-right candidate from the ironically titled Freedom Party, which I think is a bit like how, you know, little is in Little John. Um, Norbert Hofer from the, Free, uh, from the Freedom Party was beaten by only 31,000 votes. And I know that might sound like quite a lot to you. And let's be honest, if this podcast had 31,000 listeners, I'd be a pretty happy man. But out of the nearly 5 million people who voted in Austria, 31,000 really isn't that much. 
And for a country that's really witnessed the damage a far-right Austrian leader whose surname begins with H can do, it is worrying that there was that much support for Hofer. And while, yeah, you're going to argue that that's probably quite a cheap comparison to make, and yes, you might also argue that last week's show was all about politicians saying Hitler far too much, so let's stop saying Hitler on this week's show as well. In fact, it's really odd, though, that when Hofner came that close to power, nobody mentioned Hitler at all, especially when he's been known to wear a blue cornflower in his lapel, which is a Nazi symbol, and he carries a gun with him at all times because, as he said, of the threats of immigration. Basically, his popularity, despite his overall loss, is part of the rise of the far right across Europe, including Marie Le Pen's Front National Party in France, the Party of Freedom in the Netherlands, and the anti-Islamic alternative for Deutschland in... Yeah, Deutschland. I mean, I guess that one's sort of obvious. I mean, with the two centrist parties uh, in Austria and the previously the most popular ones uh, being knocked out of the running very early on, it's very clear that the political dissatisfaction felt by most people around the world that's caused the rise of Corbyn and UKIP in the UK and Sanders and Trump in the US, that's happening all over Europe too. And do you know what? That could be a good thing, such as Der Belen winning. Or it could mean that we'd all better get building bunkers in our own garden ASAP. It really, it really does sound like the Bellin, doesn't it? De, Be- De Bellin. SMP MP Stuart Hosey uh, is quitting as the party's deputy leader in the autumn. Uh, this is after allegations that he claimed expenses for accommodation that he used to carry out an extramarital affair. Uh, and that extramarital affair was actually with the same woman that SNP MB Angus McNeil was also having an affair with. I mean, I guess it makes sense that they'd both cheat on their wives, considering how against the idea of better together they were. Hosey has taken it upon himself to resign in order to spend more time with his families. A source involved with the long-awaited Chilcot inquiry told press it would savage Tony Blair and Jack Straw and is absolutely brutal. Great. I can't wait. Despite a lot of protesting against it, North Yorkshire County Council decided why not take a leaf out of the government's book and generally ignore what the public actually want to instead focus on some lovely money. They have approved a bid for fracking to take place in Rydale. You know, fracking, that process of drilling deep into the ground that hasn't yet been proven to not cause tremors and water contamination. I mean, why wouldn't you want some of that in your backyard? Uh, This is actually a really worrying victory as it could open the floodgates, that's possibly the wrong choice of words, um, to other plans for fracking extractions around the country. I'm trying to think of a plus side to all this, but really, the closest I can get is that at least if fracking opens up tons of cracks in the ground, all the flood water that happens in that area during the winter will have somewhere to go. It'll be sort of like a pound shop version of Godzilla vs King Kong. Yeah, it's still not quite good though, is it? Oh, fracking hell. Around this time every year, the government find a little hatch in the back of the Queen and slowly feed in their Christmas list of wishes that she then regurgitates as part of her speech at the opening of Parliament. And she does it with all the enthusiasm of a self-service till. This year's diatribe of telling you what cuts are going to happen to all the things you need in your life while she sits in a golden throne contained about 21 bills, which is a lot of bills unless you're at some sort of William convention. And some of those bills, much like Queenie's grandson William or advert against eating e-numbers during pregnancy, Will I Am, aren't really very exciting, you know, such as the bus services bill. But then there are others, like Shakespeare or Shatner, that could have a very long-lasting impact. These bills include the Higher Education and Research Bill, which allow tech firms like Google or Facebook to start their own universities. 
I mean, there is nothing like knowing those thousands that you're paying for your education will end up somewhere in Bermuda while you still can't find a job despite graduating from a search engine. On the plus side, it will finally make drama or media studies degrees seem worthwhile when someone out there is getting a first in Farmville. Then there's the Bill of Rights, which got its annual mention as some sort of tradition under the Conservatives. Ultimately, they'd like it to replace the Human Rights Act on account of it not being more fair to say giant lizards or pigs, but this year the Human Rights Act wasn't even mentioned. So perhaps they've changed it and done a little U-turn and now it's just an extra British Bill of Rights, including very British things like the right to be able to talk about the weather for 15 whole minutes without interruption, the right to drink three cups of tea without judgement, or the right to complain about everything but only after it's happened and long after you could have done anything about it. One of the most concerning bills was the Prison and Courts Reform Bill. And this is basically another one of Michael Gove's and is basically an academy programme for prisons, allowing them to be run independently. And that sounds great, you know, if someone has an innovative idea for how to run things and maybe reform prisons, but what if that person is actually just a big Harry Potter fan with dreams of a real-life Azkaban? Could be terrifying. The idea is that all these prisons would be reformed prisons, working on the notion seen in many Scandinavian countries of, you know, actually reforming criminals and trying to rehabilitate them back into society. Which is great. But it does seem like the way that all this will be monitored uh, is with classic Michael Gove stats and rates rather than case studies and actual progress. Meaning that, yeah, someone using dementors could well get the best results from people regardless of how they do it. If you look at the problems prisons like Oakwood, which are run by G4S, have had with riots and violence, you really need to make sure the people running the prisons know what they're doing before you delegate powers to them. Otherwise, you're essentially just creating some sort of centre for violent criminals to attack each other with more efficiency. Several old prisons are being closed and six new reform prisons are going to be built instead. And there's also plans to allow prisoners convicted of smaller offences to have home curfews, working during the week but spending weekends in prison, which allows them the best ever excuse to avoid social events and boring work stews. It also might mean that they realise just how awful jobs and the job centre are at the moment, leading them to commit further crimes for a far less stressful life in the future. Part of the same bill is also going to be to close a fifth of all courts, which sounds quite drastic, and the idea is that it's going to be to digitise more fines. And I have to say, that sounds pretty great, on account of how often people misspell my name, meaning that all those speeding tickets will never ever get to my email. So yeah, some things to be wary of as per every year, and some as per every year that could actually, I suppose, be quite useful. I mean, like the modern transport bill, paving the way for driverless cars on UK roads. Hmm, mindless vehicles pre-programmed to drive things home. Bit like the Queen's speech in a way, eh? The current refugee crisis is now the largest since World War II, with the movement of asylum seekers, particularly from Syria and Iraq, growing every day. The British government grudgingly agreed to U-turn and take in 3,000 unaccompanied refugee children from Europe recently, but that's really not that many. Instead, the overall sentiment seems to be a lot keener towards sending more bombs to Syria than taking refugees from there, and then asking why people from the places they're bombing keep fleeing. I sort of expect that the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon regularly takes dumps in his own living room and then complains that the rest of his family won't watch TV together with him anymore. When Angelina Jolie, who is a special envoy for the UN Refugee Agency, stepped forward and said that Britain needs to take in more asylum seekers, it just led to more British people being even more angry with her than after they saw Tomb Raider 2. But she was right. 
something needs to be done and really it's going to be pretty hard to do without Britain and the rest of Europe really changing their game plan. By that I mean they need to realise it's not risk or go and instead they should be helping those in need to win the game of life. This week I spoke to Susan Jex at Care for Calais, a campaign run entirely by volunteers to help those in the refugee camps in France, to talk about what can be done. Sue had a little bit of a nightmare day transport-wise, um, and we'd planned a time to chat, but after a ridiculous train journey, thanks to Southern Trains, damn you Southern, um, I had to move our interview time to a bit later, and I spoke to her when I think she was on her way home. So, the sound isn't bad, but there is the odd bit of background noise. I mean, if anything, why not listen to it when you're on your way somewhere and you can feel like you're travelling together, that would be nice, like a buddy. Uh, or, like me, you can listen to it while sitting down, but pretend you're actually doing exercise, which is way better. Here's Sue. So, hi Sue. Um, could you uh, give us a bit of uh, info for, for myself and the listeners? What is it that, that Care for Calais does? Hello there, hi. Um, well, Care for Calais uh, is based in Calais in France. Um, and we've got there a warehouse and a number of fans. We have about 50 volunteers on the ground every day. And we um, deliver aid into camp every day, um, mainly into the jungle, but also into small camps around uh, northern France, uh, anywhere from Paris to Dieppe to Dunkirk, um, Lille and onwards. Right, OK. And so how many so how many people have you got working for you? How many people are in Kev Calais? Well, it's all, uh, it's all run by volunteers. Um there are people who um, volunteer and have given up a lot more, particularly our founder, Claire Mosley, who moved to Calais and has lived there since last September. So she's on the ground every day. We've got um, eight or nine long-term volunteers. When I say long-term volunteers, they're generally there for between two and three months. Um, and there are kind of team leaders and they rotate around, um, mainly younger people, not always, uh, but um, and then the rest of people sort of come in and out and stay for a week or stay for a weekend. Um, and that's how we run it. And we've just branched out into things like um, teaching English, uh, running art classes. And every week at the moment, we run a sports day where it's volunteers versus refugees at football, volleyball um, and cricket. Oh, that's really nice. That sounds, that sounds like a sort of fun part of it. Yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, I bet. Um, and, and you've been over quite a few times, have you? Yeah, um, I go over every two or three weeks, but I run the back office of Care Calais. So booking of lorries and donations and websites and emails and volunteer coordination. Um, and I do that with a team of fabulous people from the UK. And, and what, what's it, what, what are the conditions like when you've been over there? What are the conditions like? Could you sort of give us a bit of info? Because I think a lot of people kind of just get a few clips from the news uh, yeah, and often they're of the police not being happy rather than the actual conditions of the camp. Or, you know, it's, it's we, yeah. I don't think people can really understand what it's like there. No. Um, and it has changed. It's been through a number of phases. So um, uh, sort of, there's a lot of arrivals, people living in tents in sort of September, October time. Um, you know, really small two-man tents and that kind of thing. Um, it then hit winter. There was a massive building work, uh, building programme went went on across the winter. So everybody's, or well, most people are now in shelters and not in tents. So um, that's positive. But the winter was really long, cold, wet, um, 
conditions on the foot were very difficult. It is an excellent soil site. So, um, as you can imagine, it's it's not great in terms of living conditions. There are standpipes for water. Um, there are phone charging points, perversely. But that's, and people say, why have refugees got smartphones? But it's that, you know, if you were running and fleeing from persecution, you know, the number one thing you'd take would be your phone because not only have you can you contact and keep connections with your family, but, you know, you've really got on there your photographs and, um, you know, you've got email and all of the things that we use phones for these days. Um, and, and they're, you know, sort of vital. So the phone charging points, but there's not enough showers, there's nowhere to wash clothes, um, it's very wet, there's nowhere to dry anything, uh, it's next door to a chemical factory, and the, the smell is just pungent. Oh, and God. It's really causing challenges for people uh, with illnesses. So it really is, I mean, it, 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 it's meant to be temporary at best. Yeah, but, and there's people who've been there for a long time. If you claim asylum in Fox, people again think that refugees um, have all, like, you know, they're, they're all waiting to come to the UK. There's been quite a few who've clapped uh, asylum in France, uh, but why, the, the, the system in France is that while you claim, while you wait for your asylum to be heard, then what you have to do is remain where you are. So an asylum process in France takes eight months uh, on average. And so basically people are waiting in the jungles for eight months while an asylum is being heard. So, but, you know, they're stuck there. Nowhere else to go. Right, OK. So I didn't realise that because, you know, quite a lot of people constantly bang on. Why do they all want to come over here? And, and I suppose they don't, do they? It's just that they, they actually well, can't go anywhere else. When they first got there... You know, who knows? But there, people are in a, a number of different situations sure. uh, there, and there are a lot of people with families. There are some unaccompanied, about four or five hundred unaccompanied children, uh, unaccompanied minors, sort of anywhere from sort of ten to, 10 to seventeen uh, in age. Um, there are people with family in the UK, uh, and there are people who have claimed asylum in France. So there's a real mix. And, and so let, let, I'll just take it back a bit, I suppose. How bad is this? Because we're constantly being warned about the migrant crisis. And how, how bad is it, in your opinion? And do you think that, that things are getting worse? Is there, has there been an increase of, of people uh, um, fleeing yeah. and, and seeking it's, asylum? It's, <laughs> the migrant crisis overall is that there are a million people already on the move uh, in, 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 in Europe. Um, there are many more millions who are either in Turkey or in Jordan or in Lebanon in refugee camps. And, and you know, refugee camps are not the best place to live and are not, not the best place for anyone, but, you know, children in particular. So people's lives have been disrupted, education has been disrupted, and the living conditions aren't great. Um, I, I read just this morning, actually, that there's uh, 800,000 in Libya that are um, sort of in refugee camps there who are some of whom will be obviously attempting to cross into Europe. So this isn't just, you know, a few economic migrants trying to get a better life. This is a crisis of, of, on epic scale. It's there's, there's five or six million people who are on the move because of, they are fleeing from one form of terror and oppression or another. 
Yeah, so that's the sort of uh, thing I keep, uh, you know, people can sort of, uh, or, you know, there's a lot of anti-refugee sentiment, but you sort of think we're not helping the countries that they're coming from if we're, yeah. if we're not doing anything to stop. I mean, because, yeah. you know, the plans before Christmas were that we should bomb Syria. Is that, do you think that's actually helped? That sounds to me more like there's, you know, you're just creating more situations for people to flee. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, in fact, I've, I've spoken to a number of Syrian refugees in Calais around that, saying, "How would you think about the UK getting involved? Is it going to make it better or worse?" And they view, view overwhelmingly as if it's going to make it worse um, because there are, you know, in, in Syria there are they don't know they need to move because they don't even know they don't know who their enemy is. It's it's not again people I've heard in this country say, right, in the Second World War, we all we all you know, our parents and our grandparents stood up and they fought the enemy. And actually you knew who your enemy was at that point in time. I'm not saying it was easy by any means, but you knew who it was here in Syria at the moment particularly. You know, you don't know if it's the government, the rebel forces, the Russians, the West um, you know, the attacks can come from 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 any point, and if you have family in there, then you know many people are saying, oh, "I've just had to get family out." Um, but you know, again, it's not just you know we focus on Syria, and yes, Syria's bad. We all there's also quite a few people from Afghanistan who, you know, I've talked to a number who were uh, helping the British forces, so uh, or the American forces. They were lorry drivers, chefs, um, you know medics, whatever, lots of different professions and, and they were targeted by the Taliban and their families were after um, the US and the UK armies pulled out and felt they needed to flee. We've got people from Darfur in South Sudan um, who are fleeing uh, horrendous conflicts with um, real um, terror and fear being visited upon many of the population there. So, you know, the the, 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 the Problems are on a number of fronts, not just Syria. We'll return to my interview with Sue shortly, but first... Hi, I'm Seth, or Seth, um, but only my mum calls me that. Um, I'm the Egyptian god of, amongst, I mean, many other things, I do quite a lot, um, but mainly sort of disorder and violence. And I guess, I mean, really, um, either a Remain or a Brexit would probably be all right for me. I mean, uh, the Tory party's going to be in a bit of a mess either way, isn't it? So <laughs> that's going to that's gonna tick all my boxes. Um, I mean, just... just do whatever you believe in, guys. But of course, if you if you don't believe in me, I I will I will have to kill you. Hi, I'm Chairman Mao Zedong, and I think the UK should remain because I'm all about the one-party state. It's the way to go, guys. Uh, but I do have to say, you should all definitely leave the European Convention of Human Rights because let me tell you right now, human rights are way overrated. Boo to them. Um, hi, my name is Sisyphus, um, and I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, ah, he's Greek, so he's gonna hate the EU, but actually, hang on one second. <laughs> well, actually, I quite like the EU because, you know, it gives me uh, a little bit of annual leave due to the working regulations, a few days off a year, and of course there's the health and safety, which really make this job, you know, what it is. Um, and I mean, I've got, hang on. Oh, be horrific but thanks to the EU I've only got to do it like maybe 7,000 more times today and without it it might have to be 8,000, 9,000 so I think you know you got to really appreciate it where you can. 
It is just one month to go until the EU referendum, which means only one month left of nonsense filling up the news. And sadly, only four podcasts left of this jingle. With or without you, with or without you. And as things get closer to the voting day, it seems that the Remain campaign are opting into scaring voters into fearing the absolute worst if a Brexit happens. Meanwhile, Vote Leave appear to have hired the Boris and Penny Improv Group to just make up campaign points based on various suggestions from the crowd. Let's start this week with Turkey. Uh, You may remember way back in episode four of this show when I couldn't find a guest to interview, uh, and I instead went through a UKIP advert pointing out everything that was wrong about it. And that advert was all about the threat of Turkey joining the EU. And what was wrong about it is that Turkey won't be joining the EU anytime soon, if really ever. You didn't listen to that one? No? Okay, uh, well, stop this one, check that one out, and I'll see you back here in a minute. All done? Okay. Great. Uh, Well, since that episode, the relationship of the EU and Turkey really hasn't changed much at all. I mean, this, of course, hasn't stopped the Vote Leave campaign from making whacking great big adverts that are going out this week saying Turkey is joining the EU, which, again, it isn't. And for Tory MP and Defence Minister Penny Mordaunt from saying on The Mar Show that Britain can't veto Turkey from joining the EU, even though it actually can. I mean, it requires a unanimous vote from all EU member states to allow another state in. So if Britain stays in the EU, it can absolutely make it like a vegetarian Thanksgiving, a no turkey party. David Cameron called out Penny Mordaunt on it immediately, saying that she was wrong, uh, as did anyone that's ever read anything, really. And everyone watched in complete glee as the tears in the Conservative Party grew more than the ones in my trousers after a vegetarian Thanksgiving. The Vote Leave campaign has been accused of being part of a race row because of these adverts, and that was before even anyone from UKIP was allowed to comment on it all. Part of the campaign does suggest that Turkey has a large number of criminals, and that staying in the EU means Britain wouldn't be able to stop them from entering our country, which is hugely inflammatory and very racist towards Turkish people. Plus, if they were very rich Turkish criminals, it wouldn't matter if we stayed in or left, I'm pretty sure the government would help them launder money and buy private flats in London anyway. Vote Leave had pointed out that even Theresa May said she was worried about Turkish organised crime earlier this year, but that's possibly because no one is worried about unorganised Turkish crime or unorganised crime from anywhere, as they usually can't get it together to do anything. It does really feel like the Vote Leave campaign is now clutching at straws. Uh, Boris Johnson claimed last week that the EU won't allow the UK to have bunches of more than three bananas, which is worrying because it either means that London has had a mayor for eight years who doesn't even know how to buy fruit, or that supermarkets and grocery stores everywhere have been breaking EU law. I suggest if you see a bunch of bananas with more than three in, that you tweet a picture of it to Boris and ask for his help trying to work it out. Strangely, the one line that was thrown to Vote When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week to help pull them back to credible shore was George Osborne warning that a recession that could follow a Brexit would lead to a fall in housing prices. Which would, I think personally as a renter, be fucking brilliant! It's one of those arguments that makes me wonder if I should actually vote out so I could possibly buy a place at some point before we have to leave this planet and live in space. But instead of capitalising on this, you know, rallying all the young people everywhere to the cause, look, you could finally get a home if we leave, getting all suffering in the housing crisis to cheer out, out, out in unison. Instead of all that, the Vote Leave campaign just said George Osborne wasn't telling the truth and that won't be happening. Which proves that with Conservatives leading both sides of the campaigns, they really are just aiming everything at other rich people. Until they really let us know how much Netflix will cost after a Brexit and if we can still bring over cheap booze from France on a sun holiday deal, then I don't think anyone will connect with us until they've realised that we voted the opposite way to how they want. The Remain campaign have put all their irons in a big scary fire that threatens to burn everyone if it's a vote out. Speaking during a visit to B&Q's head office, George Osborne gave Treasury analysis that Brexit would cause a year-long recession and the loss of 820,000 jobs. The crowd at B&Q typically responded by bringing him three different types of plywood that he didn't want or need, saying that they didn't have any recessions in the colour that he'd like, and by talking to each other about what they were going to do on the weekend instead of paying any attention to him. The Treasury actually gave two possible outcomes of a Brexit. One suggested sterling would fall by 12% and 520,000 jobs would be lost, and the other option, which they call the severe shock scenario, uh, would be a lot worse, leading to 820,000 jobs lost. I mean, frankly, if they're going to do that, I'd have preferred a whole choose-your-own-adventure type scenario that gave us the forecast if we chose to take the rare jewel and took a left, or if we chose to look in the Minotaur's cave before meeting the wizard. But no, only two from the Treasury. Osborne tweeted his crap B&Q-based style rhetoric, saying, Do people really want to vote for DIY recession? Forgetting that that's exactly what they did when they voted his party into government in 2010 and again in 2015. Several economists have said that there's absolutely no proof that a recession would happen, nor that jobs would be lost, with several saying that it could in fact be the opposite. And yet, again, we're back to a simple realisation that really none of us can have any idea exactly what will happen if we leave. But hey, the idea of four bananas in a bunch, I mean, can you, can you even imagine? On a personal note, I've spent a little bit of time this past week reading the left-wing arguments for a Brexit, and I think they're all pretty valid points, uh, all about how the EU promotes privatisation and easy access to our services and properties uh, from the very wealthy, which neither of those are very good things. Um, if you get a chance to listen to the new economics podcast this week about TTIP, um, that's a subject that I really want to get to on this podcast uh, in a few weeks as well. Um, it's, a, it's a really terrifying thing, as is the CETA, which is like the Canadian equivalent. 
David Cameron this week signed off on protecting the NHS from those things. Um, but he is a fan of both CTRP and CETA. Uh, and while there's a chance that we would probably get them anyway if we stayed in, you do have to wonder if the single superstate that is the EU is good for many of the public services that everyone but the really wealthy rely on. But at the same time, the thought of being left with just the current government for decisions and policies is a terrifying thought. And when the Leave campaign are banking on racism and fruit paste bollocks, you have to vote against that, don't you? God, it's so confusing. And now back to Sue. And and do you think, because, I mean, like personally, I sort of feel that the... the uh, aside from taking in refugees and helping them, I, I sort of feel like we should be doing a lot more to help the situations in those countries. But on, on the on the front of helping refugees, I mean, do you think the UK is doing anywhere near enough uh, to help no. at the moment? <laughs> no, that was a, a very quick answer. <laughs> um, the, the, no, I don't. I think given the scale of the issues and the crisis, I think Europe could do an awful lot better generally than it is. And, uh, you know, Europe, the deal that the Europe, Europe stuck with Turkey about one, one in, one out, I don't think particularly helps anyone. Um, so this is sending refugees back if they're not, if they're not felt to have a proper asylum claim when they get to Greece and sending them back across the water to Turkey and, and for every comes in and sending another one back. And I just don't, I, I don't really think in this current scale of crisis, I don't think that's really helpful. I think some countries have played a great part. Um, Germany has played a great role and seemed to have really embraced and understood. And I know Angela Merkel is having a bit of a backlash about some of it, but I think overall, I think, again, a, a small number of voices can create a lot of noise. I think overall they've done brilliantly well. I think the UK has... You know, if you look at the number of refugees, 20,000 that they're looking to take by 2020, is just dropping the ocean. Um, and, I, you know, it's not that I'm advocating saying, let's all of the people in Calais come to the UK. I, I'm not. Um, but there has got to be a better way than saying, well, 20,000 by 2020 and they all come from Jordan or Lebanon. Um, and, I, you know, there has to be a recognition that actually, if we were all in those countries, we would, we, and we'd had the wherewithal, some money or whatever, we'd have got our children or our families, we'd have got them out somehow. You know, you would lose heaven and earth. It's got to be a recognition that some of these people are in Europe because they're fleeing the same terror that the people are in Lebanon and Jordan are, and, and we have to do things to help them. It's like opening your front door and somebody, from a UK perspective and somebody is sitting on your doorstep in desperate need and you step over them. It's, uh, it's what I liken it to. Yeah, it would, I mean, I, you know, like I say, sort of said, I, I personally, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to help people who are in need. I think it's, it's simple human empathy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I read, and, and this was a little while ago, but there were several senior judges and other figures who said that the UK has provisions to take in about 75,000 people without it really affecting us. Um, I don't know if that's, yeah. that's is that correct? Is that about right? Well, the, the, the 20,000 number that was originally, um, was originally proposed as something like um, eight for every town in England. And if you think of something like Wembley Stadium that takes 100,000 people, and it's not a whole lot in the scheme of, you know, a country, country this size and, and our facilities have got to be able to, to cope with that kind, you know, that kind of influx. It's it's a tiny 
minority or tiny percentage uh, of the population or, or the facilities that they can use. You know, if you look at the, how the UK approached the Kinder's transport in, 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 um, in, at the end of the Second World War, it took in a lot of Jewish children and they really helped the, the, they really helped the UK economy. And it was one of the Kinder's transport children was Lord Alfred Dobbs, who um, proposed the amendment in the House of Commons mm. a couple of weeks ago around, around trying to allow unaccompanied children into the UK who were in a very similar position to who was at the end of the Second World War. And why why was that just, I mean, uh, forgive me for being slightly ignorant on this, why is it sort of 3,000 unaccompanied children? Um, why, uh, you know, why do they have to be from Europe? What's the kind of, why was it that specific? Um, generally, the refugees who are in Syria and Lebanon, um, sorry, in Lebanon and Jordan are generally family groups of together. There are families that have been split up either, you know, in the journey across Europe. And I think particularly for a child who is either in France or Germany or Greece or wherever they are in, in, this, in the whole kind of journey, to be in a foreign country with a different language and no wherewithal to, to or less wherewithal to look after yourself um, has got to be a particularly terrifying situation. Sure. And I think some of the adults who try to befriend them, it's a bit like any situation, you know, some of the adults may have other motives for trying to befriend them. And sure. I think we, we really, as a community of Europe, really owe it to particularly children who are on their own. Um, to, to help, uh, you know, even if we can't help everybody, we must be able to help the unaccompanied children. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I did read that there, yeah, quite a lot go missing and, and trafficking they is do. an issue and things like they that, do. which is yeah, really terrifying. Um, and sort of also makes you wonder why it took the government so long to decide they would take them in uh, when it's. Um, yeah, and actually, there so was the, the original amendment was, was for a set number of 3,000, which was felt to be the UK's fair share of the unaccompanied children across Europe. And when it did eventually get passed, they dropped the number from it and they've left it to local authorities. To, they're encouraging local authorities to take five each. Um, it's not a lot. It's not large in, in terms of numbers. But if every local authority took five, that would bring us to the, the number of three thousand. So, um, but the local authorities are under no obligation to take five. So we might end up, you know, they've cost it, but it might end. We might end up taking a very low number. So uh, we've been trying to encourage people to write to their local authority and encouraging classes to take. Each. Do you, do you think part of it is, I mean, because because things uh, in the UK, particularly austerity measures, mean that a lot of services are struggling. Do you think that's part of the reluctance to kind of help people from abroad that that, that are in need and help refugees? Or, you know, that we're, uh, I mean, what, what do you think the reason is that there is this kind of anti-refugee sentiment, this kind of reluctance to help? Um I think two things. One is I, I don't think the referend the in out referendum for Europe is helping. Right. Um because people it, it, this focus is so so much on the in out there, there are arguments um on both sides as to how you know, that both groups the in campaign and the out campaign are using which which they don't want to make they don't want to start saying let's bring refugees in and feeling that, that, that that's going to impact on the potential vote on twenty third of June. So that that's not helping and it's kind of it's kind of frozen the whole issue in terms of, of getting a government response. Um, but I think people are I 
think the, the second thing is I really think the media has not portrayed this well. Um, I think there's a lot of um, fear-mongering that's gone on mm. um, in broadcasts. Um, some of the ones that, that I see, I look at it and think, mm, that's really not what I see and they're not the people that I meet. Um, and I, as I say, I go over there frequently. Um, so I think I think there has been a little bit of fear stoking and I think that then in terms of trying to find a solution, the referendum has, has stalled it. Yeah, because I mean, a part of the kind of fear mongering that, that I think is ridiculous, and 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 uh, I was uh, well, actually, I was speaking with Frankie Boyle last week, who had a lovely joke about this, but he, talking about that, you know, this idea that terrorists are being sent over with refugees, but yeah. a these people are fleeing the ter- the terrorists, and b terrorists yeah. seem to be recruiting from within the UK already. So what's the point in sending them I all know. the way back? You know, <laughs> and actually, if you were if you were a terrorist and you were sitting either in Libya or Syria and going, right, what am I going to do here? To set off on a hazardous journey across Europe, which would A, take you a number of months, and, um, and B, would lead to, you would not be able to guarantee where you'd get to at all, um, or in what time scale. Um, and actually, if you claim asylum, you, you can't choose which country you go to. You could get sent to Sweden when you want to bomb London. It's it's just nonsense, really, because if, if you really are a hardcore terrorist who wants to bomb London, you would not choose that route. You would you would with the way with all of terror organisations find a better way of doing it. You know? <laughs> and that's what our great forces and police and all of the investigatory people that we probably don't even know about do a great job of, of stopping all of that kind of stuff. But it's, it's you know, to, to say that it's going to come through the refugee route, I think is 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 whimsical, really. Yeah, I mean, it's also this idea that we've sort of lost control of our borders, which I, I always feel every time I've I've left the country and come back in and have to go through passport control and security, <laughs> I sort of feel, this doesn't feel like we've lost control, you know. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. Sometimes you get searched a couple of times coming back from, from Calais. Although a friend of mine came with me one time and, and forgot her passport and went to Calais and back on the driving licence. And we've got, we got questions for a while, but she got in and she got out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. There's some tips for anyone there <laughs> anyone <laughs> who le- leaves their passport at home yeah. <laughs> um, but do, do, you, do you think as well like you're mentioning the EU referendum and, and what I seem to have noticed from a lot of reporting is that EU migration is constantly confused with refugees you know that the idea of EU migrants oh, seems to be what was that yeah. sorry yeah, yeah I agree right I agree. okay yeah and so do you think it needs to it, we sort of need to have clearer definitions I guess of what uh, because obviously refugees aren't uh, affected by free movement and EU migra- migrants aren't no. affected by detention centres and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah, we, we do really confuse whether, you know, if somebody has a right to work and wants to move from Poland to the UK, it's a completely different kind of fish. That's not, that's not the, the, that's not the refugees. That's, that's the number of people who are working. And I think, I saw, again, a statistic about there's 2 million Brits living in Europe. So actually, if we did close all of that system down, we'd get 2.2 million back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. Yeah, which yeah, my so thought is always, I, I don't really want the ones from the south of Spain back anymore that are only good at sunbathing <laughs> and, you know, robbing trains. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's people, it's a two-way 
that one. Uh, but, you know, the refugee, the other thing that people quite often think is that refugee signs asylum in Germany, they get the right to then travel across Europe, and, and they actually don't. They get the right to asylum in Germany, but they have to stay there, and, that, and there may be a number of years in which that disappears, but they, they, they don't automatically get the same right to move across the, across the EU. Sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, and, and this is something I've limited knowledge about. But I, even the Schengen area, which allows you know free movement around Europe, doesn't the UK aren't part of that anyway, so yeah, it still wouldn't affect us uh, in Absolutely. the slightest. Yeah, it, it's wonderful how much misinformation there is around, isn't it? Um, so, so let me well let me ask then. Sort of, um, I realise with a lot of these interviews I do on this podcast, we tend to sort of end on a note going, "Oh, things are terrible, are they?" Um, so what? What can or what can people do to help? Um, I, yeah, I think a lot of people are very concerned about this and would like to help, but perhaps can't head over to Calais and, and give up their time. What what would you recommend that people do? What do they? What should they check out? Where should they go? Right. So first of all, um, I'd love it if they could write to their local authority and ask their local authority chair, which they can look up on online, to um, to participate in bringing unaccompanied children over. That would be one thing. Um, there are refugee collection points across the UK, um, and refugeemap.org um, has the locations of uh, all of the drop centres, uh, and so, so they can get sent through to Calais. They could donate. www.careforcalais.org forward slash donate or come over to Calais you know it's it's, you will have an experience and a challenge and see the world so differently and and for many people in the UK it's a couple of hours you know journey Um, and we're very welcoming we have a warehouse outside of Calais so you're not thrust straight into the into the camp um, and we, we would be training people before they go they go in so they know um, you know they know, they know how things work and, and um, but it's just an unbelievable experience so um and are there people? Are there any sort of skill sets that you could do with people? Like, if, if people have a certain skill that you know that you need, is there, is there anything you, you know you particularly like? So, the type of yeah, people to go uh, teachers at the moment who can teach English as a foreign language, um, nurses, medics. Uh, uh, we do art workshops, so anybody who's um, a budding artist. But you know, generally, we we would builders who can help. Um, either fix things or build things uh, in camp. Um, but, but really, anyone who's willing to just give up some time um, and smile and talk to refugees, listen to the stories, smile and give them some food or some like clothing or some shoes or whatever it happens to be that we're doing that day, it just means the world uh, the world for these people. And you know, I mean nothing. But, but smiles and thanks uh, from refugees when we go over. It's, it is, it's humbling when you consider just what they've been through. Huge thanks to Sue for speaking to me, despite her transport issues. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in Care for Calais, uh, then do. Uh, you can find their website at careforcalais.org and donate and get involved via the links. Uh, they're also on Twitter at Care for Calais. I should say it's a number four in both those things, their website and their Twitter. Um, and, and then to be honest, I'd really like to go over and help at some point myself. Uh, so perhaps if any of you are thinking of volunteering, maybe drop me a line and maybe we can head over together uh, to help out for a day or so. Uh, I'd be really up for doing that. Um, 
should have some very interesting guests for this podcast for the next few weeks but as always if you have anyone you think I should talk to or any issues in particular you'd like to hear about uh, then let me know via the partly political broadcast at gmail.com email that still no one has emailed ever um, or at parpolbro on twitter and facebook I'd be really interested in finding a left-wing Brexiter and a right-wing Remainer, if possible. Uh, the latter is sort of a bit easier to find, but tips for both uh, would be great. So please do drop me a line. Hi, I'm Asag, the Sumerian demon, and uh, yeah, you might know me as the guy that likes to have sex with mountains. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, um, you got to uh, raise your standards high. <laughs> I, I peaked too soon. <laughs> I, I have sex with mountains. Um, um, stay in EU because otherwise getting to mountains uh, without only the, the traveling freedom, that would be hard. I mean, it, it's hard enough. Anyway, you know, trying to find a crevice you can get your n- into. Oh, sorry, is that too far? Bit too far. Sorry, sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. Hi, I'm Hel, the Norwegian goddess, and boy oh boy, it would have been easier for me if Norway had been part of the EU when I got banished from Asgard. I wouldn't have had to get stuck in shitty Niflheim if we had free movement. Seriously, all the cold and ice is held for my shi- <laughs> See what I did there? Hell. <laughs> Whoops. Okay, so bonus bit on this week's show. Jeremy Hunt actually listened to some doctors last week. Oh, are you okay? Did you fall right off your chair? Yeah, that that sounded like it hurt. But, I mean, don't worry, because hopefully there should be some junior doctors around to help you now. And, um... Also, don't worry, because Jeremy Hunt is still predictably awful and has this week also announced plans to close 3,000 chemists, presumably because he's so numb inside already that he never, ever needs painkillers at short notice. But look, back to junior doctors. The Department of Health and the British Medical Association sat around and actually discussed amending the junior doctors contract. And while BMA members haven't actually signed off on it yet, this is huge progress from the Jeremy Hunt of a few weeks ago, who seemed to hope if he closed his eyes and hid in a cupboard, everything might just sort itself out. Anyway, I thought rather than me blab on about it all again, uh, I thought it would be really nice to ask junior doctor Keir Shields, um, who I interviewed way back in episode one. Do you remember? Do you remember that long ago? So many episodes ago. Um, Keir Shields is a junior doctor uh, and... I thought that he could maybe give us a quick update on what these contract changes mean. You know, are they good or are they bad? Um, and so he gave us this very quick free diagnosis. Oh, bless the NHS. Hi, Tian, and thank you very much for inviting me back on. Um, yeah, there's been some interesting developments in the whole junior doctor contract dispute over the last couple of weeks. It's been quite difficult to follow because uh, so much has been up and down after our um, all-out emergency cover included strikes um, that I told you about the last time I was on your podcast um, the health secretary finally decided to sit down and talk with us um, in a meaningful way in a way that involved listening as well as talking uh, which was very constructive and apparently now there is a deal on the table which BMA members are going to have to vote on now it's not perfect but it is good it ticks some of our boxes it's much less discriminatory against women because it allows people who take time out to have families or time out to do research uh, to have kind of a a fast track um, training program 
that allows them to, to make sure that they hit the same pay points as everybody else in roughly the same number of years. Um, it also ensures that uh, doctors get paid for all of the work that they do, which, uh, would you believe it, is something that isn't in our current contract. Um, you may remember the last time I talked a little bit about the difference between work that was done out of social hours and work that was overtime. In other words, work that you were doing in addition to your 71 hours a week or whatever it is. Um, that has been uh, dealt with in our contract. And so there's a lot that's good. Uh, unfortunately, there are some losers as well as winners in the new contract, particularly doctors who are on call from home and maybe being rung up every 20 minutes through a, a night, uh, maybe have to come in to do work in the hospital, um, but on, on call actually on the shop floor all the time. Those doctors in particular are badly hit by the uh, current contract and the new way of offering remuneration. But ultimately, those who work more weekends, those who work anti-social hours, those who work in A&E are the big winners in the new contract deal. And that seems appropriate. So it's all going to go to a vote and we will see what the result of that is. My feeling is that... 90 odd percent of people who responded to the industrial action uh, ballot voted in favour of it. I don't think that the acceptance of this new contract is going to be as massive a majority. I think it'll probably be about 55-45, maybe 60-40. Maybe but if the BMA does a decent set of roadshows, uh, tells us all about the, the good things about the new contract, I think some people's minds may be turned towards accepting this. And hopefully that means no more industrial action. Hopefully that means doctors on the shop floor all the time on a contract that they're much happier with. So broadly positive, hopeful, and uh, yeah, crossing my fingers. Huge thanks to Keir. Uh, fingers crossed this is the beginning of a good thing and all works out. Uh, follow Keir on Twitter at Keir Shields. That's K-E-I-R-S-H-I-E-L-S uh, for updates. And uh, as I'm sure he's going to be mentioning quite a lot, uh, and I'm sure we'll be mentioning it again on the podcast soon too. <laughs> So this week's question of the week. Uh, this week, uh, there was a photo of Labour MP Liz Kendall, which surfaced of her posed on top of a British war vehicle dressed in combat gear. Uh, that means it's the second time after the leadership election that Kendall's political career has tanked. Ha! Yeah, I, I waited to say tank just for that joke. That is right. Um... Was Liz Kendall trying to look patriotic? I don't know. Or maybe she was just hoping to be the cover girl for the Chilcot Report when it's released. I mean, either way, I thought what I should do is ask you lot what other MPs should pose with for PR purposes. You know, in line with their image. At Matt Huss Comedy, uh, he says, can Ken Livingston take a picture with Hitler? Maybe Boris too? That is a trip to Madame Tussauds that I wouldn't want to accompany them on. Um, at Scott McKeating, he always manages to be very poetic in his writing, uh, does Scott McKeating. Uh, this week, he said, Neil Hamilton sitting under a post-disappointing sex flaccid penis dripping UTI fluid. That's nice. Um... At Fooled Again said, um, Michael Gove with an ass, preferably a pompous one. That would be suitable. Um, he also said, Sajid Javid with Dan Dare and the Mekon. Um, they'd be hard to tell them apart. Um, 
At Fluff Logic says Boris Johnson with a clown car and George Galloway with a giant mug. I think he's got a giant mug already. Oh, joke about his face. Um, at underscore Al. Oh, so it's at Al underscore Vim. Uh, he says that Boris Johnson should pose alongside a seven foot pink rabbit and then we should tell him that only he can see it. Um, that's dangerous because. For a start, he'd still tell everyone that it was there and that we only couldn't see it due to EU regulations. Um, he Al also suggested, uh, how about David Cameron in front of an oncoming train? Perfect. Uh, at Nuncio2 said, Eric Pickles by a massive pie. Now, look, I think that's a little bit cheap to just mock him because of his weight. And the fact is, there's so many other things that define his really shitty career that he could stand next to, you know, like a second home or a failed HS2 model. Um, and at Ethan D. Lawrence uh, said, Sabit Khan next to a bus, he might as well, since no one can stop harping on about what his dad worked as. What did his dad work as, Ethan? I've, I've got no idea. I don't think I've, don't think I've ever heard. Hmm. Anyway, thanks for your suggestions. Uh, there'll be a new question next week. Check the Facebook and the Twitter and send us your responses if you'd like to be read out on this and maybe uh, get a prize. <laughs> there's, there's no prize. And that's all for this week's show. Um, as always, thank you tons and tons for listening. Please, please, please do give the show some more reviews on iTunes. It really does help bring new listeners in. And please keep spreading the word about it too. It would be great to get the numbers up yet again. It got a lovely plug from Frankie Boyle a couple of weeks ago. It shot our listenership up really quickly. And then within a week, they'd all gone away again. Uh, which probably, to be fair, says a lot about this and uh, the fact that I should make it better. But I like to think it's because the word is not being spread enough. Please do tell other people this is here. Um, I'm going to be back next week unless I finally finish building my time machine, in which case I'll be back last week. However, due to EU restrictions on time machines, that is unlikely to happen, unless it already has. Oh God, that's confusing. This week's show was brought to you by 21 Bills, including Withers, Gates and Murray, and an angry letter that says rude things about Turkey. Hello, I'm Vlad the Impaler, and I am Brexit all the way. I mean the health and safety regulations uh, on needle sticks and the needle injuries uh, in the workplace. I mean, it really ruins what I do. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm the Impaler. I gotta impale. So Brexit all the way. Get rid of that. Bring back much more sharp, stabby objects into the everyday office environment. All right, I'm Saddam Hussein, and uh, I think you should all stay in the EU and remain, because, I mean, why cause an unnecessary gulf between countries? <laughs> do, you, do you see what I did there? Um, no, I just, I just really like croissants. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.